Ink and Paint wishes to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded and edited. It is a great privilege to be able to tell stories on this land, which has a tradition of storytelling stretching back over 10,000 years. We also wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands from all over the world where our guests record from. We pay our respects to all elders past, present and emerging, and to our First Nations listeners. Yeah, I, I think this this is a, a black colony thing. Any of you read these books? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I just think it's a one, absolutely wonderful piece of material. I don't know whether you agree with me or not. <laughs> this guy has every one of them. He's oh, read it twice. Well, anyway, I think, uh, I think they, they, the possibilities there are just... I think that can be just wonderful. And, and uh, Layout is interesting. They deserve to be done really well, or they shouldn't be done at all. And I don't think this unit is capable of doing it. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ink and Paint, a podcast journey through the Disney animated classics. I'm your host, Daniel Lamon. We're exploring one by one the films in the official Disney animated canon and talking about their artistic, historical and social context, where they come from, their impact and how they sit with us now. In our previous episode, the new generation of Disney animators took centre stage with the moving tale of friendship, The Fox and the Hound. In this episode, we begin our two-part look at one of the most notorious Disney animated features, the dark fantasy epic, The Black Cauldron. Each episode on Ink and Paint, I'm joined by a special guest, not just film and animation enthusiasts, but people from all different professions. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Simon Rodway. Dr. Rodway was born in Edinburgh, Scotland, and completed a degree in Celtic studies, followed by a PhD in medieval Welsh linguistics at what was then the University of Wales in Aberystwyth. He is now a lecturer in the Department of Welsh and Celtic Studies at what is now Aberystwyth University, specialising in medieval Welsh and Irish language and literature. In 2021, he had his first novel published, Cardi Gok and the School of Magic, a Welsh language fantasy for children inspired in equal measure by Harry Potter and medieval Welsh literature. Simon, welcome to Ink and Paint. Thanks very much. I'm delighted to be here with you. Very excited to talk about this topic with you as a both a, you know, an ardent, you know, passionate fan of the Black Cauldron out of some sort of, you know, sick fascination, but also like a massive interest in mythology. I'm very keen to talk to you about this one. But to start off with, I just wanted to kind of talk about your studies in, you know, Celtic mythology and Celtic languages. How did you come to Celtic studies as an area of research? Well, um, I, I sort of fell into it by mistake in a, in a funny sort of way. I mean, I had an interest in medieval literature when I was a teenager, you know, sort of Arthurian stuff and so on. And a lot of that, I think, had come through reading sort of literature, novels and so on, particularly things like T.H. White's Once and Future King, Tolkien, you know, things like that. That led me to look um, at some of the sort of medieval texts which had inspired them, including reading the Mabinogion in translation. And as a result, I, I originally applied to do a degree in English in Aberystwyth University, uh, but I quite quickly um, switched to do Celtic studies. Uh, and that gave me an opportunity to really 
you know, get get stuck into the original text, which had inspired some of the sort of authors, fantasy authors and so on that I'd um, really admired uh, when I was growing up. And what did you find when you started to engage with those early texts? Were there things about those texts that surprised you or were there things that were like, what were some of the unexpected discoveries that you made by actually going back to those original sources? They turned out not to be quite how I thought they were going to be. Um, and, and this is a topic which fascinates me and one which is relevant to the Black Cauldron and to Lloyd Alexander and so on. You know, largely speaking, I mean, I, I was born in Scotland and brought up in um, in England. And I think, generally speaking, outside of Wales, there is a, a, a great sort of ignorance about, um, you know, Welsh and Welsh literature and culture and so on. When people are, are sort of interested in it, there's, a, there's a, an element of romanticisation as well. This kind of Celtic mist kind of thing. So I think that's what I thought I was going to find, lots of druids and sort of standing stones and that sort of thing. And actually, the stories aren't like that. I mean, they have an element of magic in them, but there's also an awful lot of very sort of practical things um, which reflect the uh, medieval society. Um, so there's an awful lot of stuff about the value of uh, of this, that, and the other, you know, and characters um, have, a, a, you know, a sort of um, social standing which can be measured very precisely in how much gold they're worth, essentially. So as well as this element of what, what to us seems quite fantastic, you know, you have dragons and you have magic and you have, um, you know, w wizards and, and um, you have sort of undead warriors that climb out of cauldrons and what have you, but you also have a sort of reflection of um, the contemporary society and the concerns of that contemporary society uh, with legitimacy of rulers, um, with, you know, keeping the peace between, um, you know, various factions and what have you. There's a good element of sort of um, a Christian morality in there uh, and so on. And there's quite a lot of um, elements that come from European literature, from classical literature, and also from the fact that the authors of these texts were steeped in the Bible and in Christian, you know, Christian texts of various sorts. So whereas perhaps people sometimes look at them as sort of windows on some ancient pagan world, there's a little bit of that, of course, but it's mixed in with an awful lot uh, which belongs to the sort of high Middle Ages, you know, the 12th century, 13th century or whatever. Well, I guess, I mean, it's the difference of, you know, when we look at those, the the kind of tr what we think of the tropes of fantasy that we might associate with that, with that time period, we look at them as being an other. But I guess for, you know, the stories being written down or developed in the midi in you know, medieval periods, this is a reality to them. In, like a, even if, whether it's a direct reality of the world that they're existing in or an explanation for the world they're existing in. So the practicality in the, the way that myth kind of has to be, as well as having a, an entertainment storytelling capacity also has a practical moral capacity as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and um, what's interesting is that you find discussions in medieval literature about what the purpose of, of literature is. And, um, uh, you, you know, one purpose, of course, was entertainment. Uh, but, but another purpose was, um, you know, a sort of educational sort of thing. And you can certainly see this in the four branches of the Mabinogi, which is one of the sources which, um, uh, Lloyd Alexander drew, drew on the most uh, for his Chronicles of Plutine. You can see, you can read them as being, if you like, sort of how-to guides for princes. Um, because some of the 
um, you know, princely characters are sort of exemplary and they do everything right, and others, you know, do everything wrong. And some of them um, learn. I mean, particularly Puig in the first branch of the Mabinogi, he starts off do, doing everything wrong. And there's a sort of joke there because his name Puig means um, something like common sense. And to start off with, he doesn't have any common sense. He does everything wrong. He manages to upset people. He very nearly loses his, um, you know, his bride-to-be through an unwise gesture. And she has to sort of set him straight and sort him out. And, and ultimately, he learns uh, and he becomes a good ruler. Do you think that's one of the reasons why it's still, I mean, obviously, for cultural reasons, it's important to continue to study and and to embrace, you know, Celtic mythologies or any mythologies from any country. But do you think that that's another reason to continue to engage with these narratives is to still find moral lessons and still find kind of guides of like how to guides of how to live and how to be a good person? Does that still have a resonance for us now? I, yes, I don't know. I mean, I think it certainly helps us to try to understand um, what how things were in the Middle Ages. Whether it's got a deeper message for us, I don't know. I mean, I'm a little bit wary of saying that because there's a school of thought, a slightly new agey school of thought, perhaps, which suggests that, you know, um, Celtic literature perhaps holds a key which we've lost in other parts, you know, more industrialised and sort of capitalist parts of society and so on. And I'm, I'm rather wary of that kind of thing because I think that that's guilty of this sort of romanticisation. Uh, and and almost sort of an appropriation of a of a a cultural artifact from another culture, you know, for sort of creative um, purposes. I mean, clearly, th- this literature has been a source of inspiration for writers, both in Welsh and in English. Uh, and Lloyd Alexander is a very good example of that. And uh, I mean, I think certainly you can find stuff which is very resonant. Now, whether that has any bearing on what it would have been, what, what it would have meant to the contemporary audience is a different issue, really. But certainly some of the images and the way that they can be interpreted and have been interpreted, I mean, you think about people like David Jones, um, you know, the, the artist and poet who wrote about his experiences in the, the, in the war um, through the prism, in a way, of, of Welsh literature. And he found uh, resonances in there to his own experience. Now, this doesn't necessarily tell us anything about the original text, uh, but but it greatly enriched his experience and, and I think perhaps helped him to make, or to try to make sense of something that was a terrible, uh, you, you know, sort of event in his life and, and indeed in the, in, in you know, in, in the history of the period, you know. To what extent are the different mythologies of the different Celtic languages in conversation with one another? Because obviously for, you know, the you know everyday person on the street, when they think of, you know, mythology from the British Isles, they're obviously going to think of Arthur predominantly. In what way are the, the stories and storytelling traditions of Wales and Scotland and Ireland and Britain all in conversation with one another? Probably people think, from the, looking from the outside, they probably think that they're more homogenous than they are. One of the issues is that um, in the Middle Ages, I mean, not, now we know, of course, that um, uh, Irish is um, the, the Irish language is related to Welsh, and we call them Celtic. But in the Middle Ages, there was no real co- 
um, conception that that was the case because the two languages had developed to the point that they weren't mutually intelligible by the early Middle Ages. Because Wales, as, as part of Britain, had been part of the Roman Empire, um, there was a tendency in Wales to sort of glorify the Roman past rather than the kind of pre-Roman, uh, what we call Celtic past to a large extent, whereas that wasn't the case in Ireland. And there was a, a tendency in Wales, I think, to, to look on the Irish as being sort of, you know, barbarians beyond the, the, the limits of the empire and so on. I mean, there must have been a reasonably high level of bilingualism, you know, um, because there was there was constant contact across the Irish Sea. But it's difficult to know to what extent people in Wales were familiar with Irish literature um, and vice versa. It's one of those things that's very difficult to prove. Uh, we have one or two examples in Welsh literature where you've got uh, Irish, the names of Irish heroes. In some cases, it's clear that uh, some of the stories were known, but but in some cases, it seems that um, the stories weren't necessarily uh, known. They were just names, um, uh, and they were just being used as sort of exotic-sounding names or something. I mean, one one interesting case in a in a late medieval poem in uh, in Welsh is um, Deirdre, who is um, one of the sort of great tragic heroines of Irish literature. Um, her name is mentioned by a, a late medieval poet, but he seems to be under the impression that she was a man. So obviously <laughs> the name has just come down, but, but the story that's attached to the name uh, was 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 unknown to this um, to this guy. Looking into the Mabinogian, you can see you can see all these various threads where you can almost see echoes of other storytelling traditions that you that that seem familiar, and certainly in terms of the influence on later writing like particularly i think i was rereading the third branch today and having flashes of you know susanna clark's jonathan strange and mr norrell in terms of like the repetition of tasks and you know the like fantastical removals or you know that kind of thing and so it's it, it, it it's fascinating to think of like how these stories were disseminating between all the different you know kingdoms and um tri- like you know all the different countries across the united the, the, the British Isles at the time, and whether they would feed into one another at all. Yes, I mean it's it's very difficult to say because clearly there are sort of motifs and um, and things which almost you could call them floating motifs because they pop up in in literature, um, you know, throughout Europe and also beyond. So in some cases, probably this is independent generation. In other words, it's sort of coincidental at a at a sort of sub literary level, if you like. You know, motifs travel quite far. There's some very interesting stuff that's been done by folklorists on this, um, you know, since the um, early years of the 20th century and sort of plotting motifs and what have you. And and certainly you can see um, so-called international motifs in the Mabinogi, um, which, which are very obvious, you know. I mean, one example which is quite good is in the second branch of the Mabinogi, the Irish a, a, attempt to ambush the British um, or, or the, you know, the, the Welsh um, army, and they they call a truce and they build this great big house and they hide warriors in bags of flour. Now, essentially, this is the same motif that you have in Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves, although of course they're, they're bottled, you know, jars of olive oil in that case. But the the central motif is 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 very similar. I mean, obviously in in um, 
Wales and Ireland in the Middle Ages, olive oil wasn't um, you know in great great supply, you know. But um, so there's a, a difference, a sort of local difference. But but the underlying principle is the same, you know. People hiding in food receptacles and then being foiled and killed. Moving on to what, towards talking about the film itself, but first of all, to have a quick chat about Disney. Do you remember what the very first Disney animated film was that you saw? Yeah, do you know what? I've been scratching my head about this. I have to confess that I didn't watch a great deal of Disney when I was a child. I mean, there were some reasons for this. One was that we didn't have a television in the house, let alone a video player. And we lived in a very remote um, area, which was far from cinemas. And also, I think my parents just were, weren't very keen on animation, really. I mean, I remember going to see, um, you know, seeing uh, Mary Poppins and so on, you know, but um, actual animations, uh, pro- probably uh, later. I mean, I do remember seeing The Jungle Book at a fairly early stage. I can't remember exactly when. So that may have been the first one that I saw. Surprisingly, that's a film that a lot of people say is their first Disney film. It, like even People across a lot of ages, often when I ask this question, quite a few people have actually said The Jungle Book. Even for me, like I know it's not the first one I saw, but I definitely saw it at quite a young age, and it tends to make quite a big impression on, I guess because it's animals and it's fun and it's not particularly, like it has a lot of complexity to it that you realise as an adult, but it's quite easy to kind of just enjoy the colours and the, the fun of it when you're a child. What about your relationship with Disney animation as you grew into adulthood was it was it something that was present or was it something that you were drawn to or you know repelled i i never got on with it very well i confess i think part of the problem was with the jungle book i'd um read the books as a child um avidly and i think i felt disappointed uh at how different the film was because i i felt that in the books um there was a sort of attempt um, I mean, obviously, the animals are anthropomorphized and they speak and so on. Uh, nonetheless, uh, Roger Kipling was was making an attempt, I think, to uh, to have them um, behave in a way that's sort of more or less recognisable of their species, you know. And it, it, that didn't really come through for me in the film. And I think I was disappointed by that. The tone was so different because there's quite a serious tone to the Jungle Book, the, the book. You know, and and that uh, to me didn't, uh, you know, all this breaking into song and everything. I mean, I, you know, latterly I've come to recognise that the songs are great, but at the time I think I found them rather disappointing because I was hoping for something closer in tone to the books. And I felt similarly about the Sword in the Stone, which is a book which I still love. Oh, the book's a masterpiece. It's one of the great works of 20th century literature. I, had, I read the, the Once and Future King when I was researching The Sword and the Stone and it completely bowled me over. Like, it's incredible. Yes, I mean, I think the whole, the Once and Future King as a whole is, is amazing. Uh, it's, it's very complex and, they're, and deeply flawed, but, but it's got a, a huge power. I, I mean, you know, the, the Sword and the Stone is, is quite trivial uh, compared to that, the book, I mean. But, but anyway, again, I, I think I felt a little disappointed that, that, that it wasn't closer to the book, which I loved so much. But th- this is probably a weakness of mine. You know, I, I find um, that, that uh, I get so sort of um, drawn into the, the, the books that I can hardly but be disappointed by uh, adaptations of them. 
But I think it's also partly a cultural difference in terms of, you know, these are films being made for American audiences and for them, Kipling and White and Carol and Graham and all of the kind of, the, the, and Barry, all of the, the great works of British literature don't mean as much to them as someone who comes from the United Kingdom. And they have a different resonance. Like, I, I certainly, like, you know, in Australia, we, you know, have probably a closer relationship with British literature than any literature than the Americans do. And there is a certain degree to which you kind of go to these works expecting, you know, at least the essence of that, of the, of the kind of mystery and beauty of those works. And they're not reflected in the Disney films because they're not for those audiences. So I think it's just, maybe it just comes down to what, a, a cultural difference in terms of how we respond to the original text and the fact that the original texts don't really, you know, they don't really factor into the, the worldview of an American audience in the mid-20th century. Yes, yes. I mean, I was thinking about that, actually, watching The Black Cauldron in some ways. Um, I think probably were, were it to be done now, it would be done, uh, it, it would possibly be done rather differently. I mean, one thing which struck me uh, um, about it was that um, the, the characters, I mean, obviously some of the, some of the actors are American uh, and you know, have their have their own accents, but but the British actors are English. You know, and you have, um, you, you know, these sort of, um, it, well, in the case of the Bard, you know, a kind of fairly plummy English accent, which probably wouldn't register to a, a large um, as being, you know, odd to a, a large slice of the audience in America. But but um, from a Welsh point of view, it seems a bit odd to have these kind of, um, you know. Archetypically Welsh characters speaking in a very English way. In the late 1970s, Walt Disney Productions published a lavish recruitment brochure to entice new animators to the studio. For nearly 50 years, it said, Walt Disney gathered together a remarkable group of colourful characters, the Disney animation staff, entertainers with pencils that gave birth to the Disney cartoon personalities and brought joy to four generations. These innovators took an interesting technique and moulded it into an art form. In recent years, we've been looking for new artists. We've found some of the brightest, most talented people there are, but the search continues. We're looking for men and women with artistic flair, people who are attracted to the Disney style and tradition of animated storytelling. We're looking for people talented enough to create new worlds of believable fantasy and a new generation of colourful Disney characters. The brochure was filled with full-colour photographs of Disney artists at work and visual material not just from the films of the past, but the films of Disney's future. This included pencil animation from the rescuers and concept art for The Fox and the Hound. But towards the middle of the brochure, two pages had been devoted to projects still in development. In the centre was an intriguing pastel drawing of a terrifying horned figure on a throne. The film the brochure promised, would be a Tolkien-esque folktale of an evil sorcerer who raises an army of the dead to carry out his plans of conquest. This tantalising and mysterious image was enough to encourage many aspiring young artists to apply for a position at the studio. Within animation circles, this project was already legendary. After a decade of successful yet modest films, this would be Disney's most ambitious animated production since the death of Walt Disney a fantasy epic akin to the great Disney classics of the past. Throughout development and early production, many saw it as their opportunity to make the Snow White and the Seven Dwarves of their generation. Instead, it would become the most infamous failure 
in animation history. In the mythical land of Pradane, young assistant pigkeeper Taran lives in a secluded hamlet with wise sorcerer Dolben and his oracular pig Henwen. In one of her visions, Henwen predicts the return of the evil horned king and tells of his search for a mysterious black cauldron able to resurrect the dead. Only Henwen can tell him where the cauldron is, so Dolben sends Taran away with her to hide. After being distracted by a strange and perpetually hungry creature named Gurgi, Henwen is kidnapped by the Horned King's winged dragons, the Gwythaints. Taran attempts to save her from the Horned King's castle, but while he is able to help her escape, Taran is captured and locked in the dungeons. Here he meets the spirited Princess Alonwi and hapless minstrel Flute of Flam, and together they escape, during which time Taran acquires a magic sword. After a reunion with Gurgi and a short detour into the underground kingdom of the Fair Folk, they travel to the marshes of Morva in search of the cauldron. Three witches possess it and exchange it for Taran's sword, informing them that the only way to destroy it is for someone to willingly sacrifice themselves into it. Very soon they are once again captured and the Horn King uses the cauldron to raise an army of the dead, but is defeated when Gurgi willingly throws himself into the cauldron. The witches try to take the cauldron back, but Taran strikes a bargain with them for Gurgi's life, and the team of friends are reunited once more. The Black Cauldron, the 25th Disney animated feature film, is based on the acclaimed series of fantasy novels for young readers, The Chronicles of Pridane, by Lloyd Alexander. An author of almost 40 books, Alexander is best known for his work for children, particularly the five-volume Pridane series inspired by the tales from Welsh mythology known collectively as the Mabinogion, the earliest prose stories in British literature. As far back as I can remember, recalled Alexander in 1999, I always loved the King Arthur stories, fairy tales, mythology, things like that. So it was very natural for me when I came to write the Pradane books to sort of follow that direction. I had always been interested in mythology. I suppose my brief stay in Wales during World War II influenced my writing too. It was an amazing country. It has marvellous castles and scenery. It has its own language. It was quite a big experience for me. I'm sure that stayed in my mind for a good many years and became part of the raw material for the Pradane books. And here again, this is surprising because you might have the impression that a fantasy, oh, it's a lot of impossible things that happen and it doesn't really mean anything. Uh, I don't feel that way about it. Uh, from my point of view, a fantasy is simply a form, uh, a way of trying to express things about real people in the real world. So fantasy is, is hardly an escape from reality. Uh, it's a way of understanding it. The first book, The Book of Three, was published in 1964 to warm reviews, and over the next seven years, Alexander would write four further volumes, The Black Cauldron, The Castle of Leah, Taran Wanderer, and The High King, with the fifth volume receiving the John Newbery Medal from the Association for Library Service to Children. Alexander also published a series of accompanying short stories set in the world of Pridane to complement the books. The journey to bring the Black Cauldron to the screen as a Disney animated feature would take 14 years, its production forced to navigate through a tumultuous period of artistic conflict, corporate unrest, and a collision of philosophies over the fundamental nature of Disney animation. Since its disastrous release in 1985, the film has attained an almost mythical status as Disney's most notorious flop. 
For over a decade after its release, it wasn't even possible to see it. This is the story of The Black Cauldron, a film on which a whole generation of Disney artists pinned their hopes of greatness, hopes that would ultimately be dashed in humiliating fashion. Its creation, begun with overwhelming enthusiasm, would turn into an endless battle over what it was and what it could represent. Many of the Disney animated films were born out of conflict, disagreement and unfortunate circumstances. Some even bear their scars. None emerge from their tortured birth as battered or as broken as the Black Cauldron. Do you remember the first time that you saw the Black Cauldron? Yeah, I do vaguely. I mean, I was a student at the time and I was sharing a house with um, an American uh, woman who was also a, a student. Uh, she, um, she's a bit older than me. We had a shared interest in a lot, a lot of literature and things. You know, T.H. White was, was one thing that we had in common. Um, and uh, she said, oh, you must read, um, uh, you know, Lloyd Alexander, which I never read. So she lent me the books. And then this was in the late 90s, and then the, the film came out on video. So we, um, we got, a cop- got hold of a copy and watched it. I think the, the one thing which I really remember from it is that the, the pronunciation of the names is just so, um, you know, so different to the Welsh pronunciation. I think, uh, I think I found it hard to get beyond that. Yes. <laughs> Understand, understandably so. It's the funny thing of you know, it in a way thinking about the connections from the Mabinogian through Welsh Welsh mythology through to the Disney film. You kind of, I would be very surprised if at any point within the process of making the film, if they ever thought further back than the Alexander novels to where these stories really come from and the like. Where does a word like predain? originate from like what what what's the kind of linguist linguistical history of it i doubt they would ever have considered that when they were making the film yes that struck me i mean this is again going back to what i said before i think probably now if the film was being made now uh, it would be very different you know because there's a much more of an awareness then uh, of um you know sort of trying to to get things right if you like which i think is um well, I mean, I think that's certainly to be commended, but um, but I imagine they probably probably would have had people looking for Welsh actors and and you know, looking for um, sort of voice coaches that would be able to um, to get the pronunciation right. I mean, I think audiences now expect um, at least some sort of semblance of you know of authenticity. Also, I suppose with social media. Um, I, I, I suppose people are, are, are sensitive to the fact that it'll only take one bloke in, you know, Blind Fist in New York or whatever to, to tweet, oh, this is a load of rubbish or something. And that could have a, a, a negative effect on them, uh, on the reception of a, of a film or whatever. And what did you make of the film now, revisiting it for this conversation after not having, I mean, I imagine, I imagine it being like Cauldron, you probably hadn't seen it again since you saw it in VHS back in the late 90s. What did you make of it now? Yeah, I, I found it a bit disappointing, to be honest. I was already expecting the, the uh, mispronunciation, so I was able to put that to one side. But I, I found it a bit disjointed. It seemed to sort of lurch from set piece to set piece a bit, and the characters didn't jump out very much. You know, uh, t- uh, Taran, or Taran, as they call him, 
he seemed a bit like an off-the-peg kind of Disney hero in a way, really. Uh, and Elonmi, the same in, 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 in a sense. Uh, Gorgi um, struck me as being very like Gollum. Yes, yeah, yes. I did think the same thing when I was revisiting it for this. He does have that same quality to him. But, but I actually think that, that, that a lot of that, because I, I, I had another look at the Lloyd Alexander books uh, just very briefly. I sort of flicked through them last night for the first time in decades, actually. But but actually, a lot of the dialogue of, of Gorky is lifted straight from the book. So um, that, I suppose, we need to lay at the feet of Lloyd Alexander rather than the filmmakers. There are definitely elements of, of the Chronicles that I I reading because I read them for the first time very recently and I did kind of go, oh, I can see, I can see some derivative Tolkienisms kind of weaving into this one as well. I guess, which makes sense considering, you know, when he was writing those books, there was nothing like the Lord of the Rings until the Lord of the Rings appeared in, you know, 20th century literature to that degree. And so everyone's kind of responding to it from there. But kind of before digging into the film, I did want to take some time to talk about what are the, what are the, storytelling traditions that this film, by virtue of being adapted from the Alexander novels, what are the Welsh storytelling traditions that it's pulling from? And in particular, what what, what is the Mabinogian within Welsh storytelling? What's its position? And like, why why is it an important an important part of Welsh storytelling? Well, well really, the, the Mabinogion is, is a modern title, which is a bit misleading, but it's become... Uh, well established, so um, it seems um, it, you know it seems counterproductive to sort of get rid of it in a way. But it was a term that was given by nineteenth-century um, scholars to a collection of eleven prose stories that are preserved in uh, medieval manuscripts in, in Wales. Then the stories are not all uh, connected to one another. There's quite a lot of variation within. Now, the, the term Mabinogion comes from a, a term Mabinogi, uh, which is used in the title of four of those stories, uh, but, but really is not relevant to the other stories at all. Um, and the, the four um, stories are, are presented in the manuscript as branches of a Mabinogi. Now, exactly what Mabinogi means is, is, a, is a, a question which has been debated endlessly, but it, it means some sort of a story. But, but basically, the, the four branches of the Mabinogi are an interlink, they're interlinked with one another. Um, they share some of the same characters and, um, you know, so, some of the same events are alluded to in, in them. But they're brilliant um, stories, actually, really, um, really well-crafted. Uh, really um, interesting. They're set in a sort of prehistoric uh, Britain before the Roman conquest, but they were, well, we don't know exactly when they were written. My guess is probably the 12th century. The, the earliest manuscripts which contain uh, fragments of the four branches of the Mabinogi uh, date from the middle of the 13th century, but um, but I would I, I would say the 12th century is probably, probably probably about right then. We, we don't have an author. Clearly, they were drawing on oral traditions, but I suspect, and I think most scholars now would, would agree, that they were literary compositions, that somebody probably composed them with a pen in hand. 
um, drawing on oral traditions rather than them being, you know, a sort of faithful uh, tran transcription of um, of, a, of an oral story. They have they, they have the feel of of a lit, of, of a sort of literary masterpiece uh, about them. Quite a lot of the names in the Chronicles of Pudain, um have been taken uh, from the four branches, including you know Gwydion and Martha um, Mathonwy and so on, who don't make an appearance in the in the story. Now the other source of which um, Lloyd Alexander used is um, an interesting text called the Triads of the Island of Britain, Trioidonis Pridain. Now, the, this is a collection of, um, well, as, as you would imagine, triads, which is essentially are lists of three things. What, what this seems to be is a sort of index um, which could be used by um, storytellers and poets. Um, and obviously, three is a very good number when you want to remember things, right? So, so you have things like, um, you know, the three um, famous swine herds of the island of Britain. Now, this is obviously relevant to the Black Cauldron because the central character is a swine herd, right? Um, now, or, or a pig keeper, like an assistant pig keeper. Now, in the film and in the book, this is sort of played for laughs, you know, because he wants to be um, a warrior and he's stuck looking after a pig. But actually... In um, Welsh literature and also in Irish literature, swineherds are quite important. They they play, play quite an important part in quite a, a lot of stories. So, um, so anyway, that, that's an example of a triad. And um, you have all sorts of the you know the three unfortunate blows of the island of Britain. Unfortunately, very often we don't have the stories that are being alluded to in the triads. Um, that a few of them we we. We do have some version of the story preserved. Now, this is unfortunate for students of medieval literature, but it's quite good for authors who want to mine um, this text for um, potential um, material, because obviously you've got hints of stories, but you don't have the story themselves. So this is an opportunity, really, for um, you know authors to to, um, to sort of tell these stories. Uh, that, that are just hinted at in the triad. And incidentally, um, the first, the, the title of the first book of the Chronicles of Pridbang is the Book of Three, and that's obviously, um, I think, a reference to the triads of uh, the island of Britain. How adept, from your memory of the books, and maybe like through the lens of the film, how adept is Alexander at mining those source materials for ideas? Is is there a degree to which there is a respect for the those story those stories and those traditions, or is it simply just a case of I like because I mean that's one thing I noticed reading the um the the first th the, the branches was that. There are lots of names I recognise from the Alexander stories, but they don't correlate in any way with the characters that they're associated with. In some cases, your characters of high status within within the branches are, you know, those names are stolen for secondary characters, and the characters that are secondary in the branches are, are like those names are used for major characters within the stories. How adept is Alexander at kind of looking into this material and kind of mining it or creating something new from it? Do you think? Well, I think he does a pretty good job on the whole. I mean, he, you know, he states quite clearly that he's not um, presenting Welsh literature or Welsh mythology or anything like that. He's he's simply using it as an inspiration. 
But um, but I I think he does a pretty good job. I mean, he yeah, in some cases he's just taking names, you know, like Gwydion or whatever. Um, and, and the, the his Gwydion is nothing like the Gwydion of the Four Branches. Uh, but you know, in some cases there are motifs. I mean, like the cauldron that produces the undead warriors and so on, um, which is a a very good um, you know, it's, it's a very a powerful motif, and and so on. Um, but I, I think he, he achieves a fairly consistent feel, which to me, as a student of medieval Welsh literature, doesn't feel jarring. I mean, I think, um, obviously, I'm in a position where, which is different to most people that read the books. I, I'm quite aware of that. But I think, you know, I mean, obviously, there are other authors. Uh, one which would um, strike, which comes to mind is um, Alan Garner, you know, who um, wrote a number of books, including The Owl Service, which is very good, but also some other books, The Weird Stone of Blissing Almond and so on, where he sort of takes rather um, freely, not just from Welsh literature, but also Irish and Norse literature, and kind of jumbles everything up in a way that, to me, uh, you know, feels quite jarring, I, I think. I mean, not as a child, I was unaware of this, and I, I enjoyed books hugely, but, but um, latterly sort of coming back. I mean, I think Tolkien set the bar very high because he was a sort of obsessive who worked on his alternate world, um, you know, for decades, um, and, and you know, as as a sort of professional philologist and so on. It's very difficult for anybody to reach that kind of height. And clearly, um, Lloyd Alexander's books have a very different feel. They're not they're not in the same kind of field, I suppose, in terms of of their um, atmosphere and and, their, uh, and what they're trying to do. They're much more light-hearted, really, I suppose. But I, I think he's done a pretty good job. Legend has it, in the mystic land of Pedain, there was once a king so cruel and so evil that even the gods feared him. Since no prison could hold him, he was thrown alive into a crucible of molten iron. There his demonic spirit was captured in the form of a great black cauldron. For uncounted centuries the black cauldron lay hidden, waiting, while evil men searched for it, knowing whoever possessed it would have the power to resurrect an army of deathless warriors. And with them, the world. In 1971, Walt Disney Productions purchased the rights to Lloyd Alexander's The Chronicles of Prydain. According to Ollie Johnson, it was he and Frank Thomas who brought the books to the studio, but Ron Miller quickly became the champion of the project. At the time, Miller was executive in charge of film production, and was starting to take a keen interest in the work being developed by the animation department. The Aristocats had been released the year before to strong box office, and work was well underway on Robin Hood but the shadow of Walt still loomed large. Miller knew that if they were ever going to establish what Disney was without Walt, they'd have to do so in a significant way. Their marker was Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Even though he had overseen many great films in the decades following its release, Snow White was still seen as Walt and the studio's greatest achievement. And if this next phase of Disney animation was going to make its mark, it needed its own Snow White. Everyone believed that this adaptation of the Chronicles of Prydain could be just that. Looking back on the project in 1996, Johnson remarked with regret 
that it could have been as good as Snow White. Pre-production began in 1973, the same year as the release of Robin Hood. The first challenge was how to approach a story of this magnitude. Contrary to popular belief, Disney never intended the film as the start of a franchise. The plan was always to make a single film out of the five Pradain books. The problem was that the books featured hundreds of characters, numerous locations, and enormous set pieces. Adapting the entire series as a single film was impossible, so a more creative approach was needed. A number of story artists were involved in the early development, including Ken Anderson, but none were able to crack the story. One of the artists tasked with tackling the adaptation was veteran Disney artist Mel Shaw. Born on December 19, 1914, Shaw had started his career in Hollywood designing silent movie title cards and working as a storyboard artist before moving into animation at a studio run by animators Hugh Harmon and Rudolf Ising. In 1937, Walt subcontracted Harming and Ising to work on the Silly Symphony short Merbabies, while they loaned Disney some of their ink and paint artists to work on Snow White. When Merbabies was complete, Shaw was made an offer by Disney to come and work for them, and he joined the studio in 1938. Though beginning as an animator, Shaw's major contribution to the early Disney classics was in visual and story development, in particular for Bambi. The type of work that I do is concept, and uh... Uh, the animated cartoon business is not uh, the type of thing where you just take a subject matter and you say this is what we're going to animate. You have to have quite a few choices. Mm -hmm. So we prepare ideas uh, and concepts, uh, story adaptations from many books, uh, many ideas that come into the studio. In 1943, he left Disney after being drafted into the army, but left behind a significant contribution to future Disney films including the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad and the Sword and the Stone. After the war, he established his own animation studio with artist Bob Allen, but in 1970 was asked to return to Disney by Ron Miller. As we talked, Shaw later recalled, it became clear to me that Miller was anxious to revitalise the animation department. As he put it, animation is what made the studio in the first place and it should be rebuilt. He asked me if I would be interested in coming back to help out. I reminded Ron that I had my own studio to run, and I would be glad to return to the studio on a part-time basis. When Shaw returned to Disney, he was presented with two projects to choose from, The Chronicles of Prydain or The Fox and the Hound. But his first task was to help Wolfgang Reitherman with the opening title sequence for The Rescuers. Working from a demo of the opening song, Shaw created a series of pastel sketches to chart the journey of the message in the bottle. Reitherman was so impressed that he decided to use the static artwork for the titles with only minimal enhancement. The next one I did was The Chronicles of Prydain, recalled Shaw. I read the books and I met the author. He was out here at the time and that impressed me and he impressed me. And that one I spent a lot of time on. They gave me a great big room up there so I could bring all the drawings and put them up on storyboards. Shaw began work on developing a film from the Prydain books, delivering a staggering collection of over 200 pastel artworks. Rather than trying to condense the novel into a single film, he conceptualised moments from across the entire series, hoping that this would guide him in crafting the story. He also knew how to present the artwork in the most dramatic way possible. Shaw was the first artist to make use of the Leica reel process in the 1930s, and used those skills to great effect to give a sense of the film he was developing, often pairing it with a recording of Karl Orff's Carmina Burana. The response to Shaw's artwork was immediate and ecstatic. It was some of the most exciting conceptual work the studio had seen in years. 
suggesting a project on a scale they had never attempted before, and the idea that it could compare to the early Disney classics started to spread. For the new generation of Disney artists in particular, this project was exactly what they had been hoping for. They had played second fiddle on the Aristocats and Robin Hood, but despite their charm, those projects were artistically modest. Don Bluth had become the voice of this group, many of whom had been working animators before being taken under the wing of Disney, and subscribed to Bluth's mission to return Disney animation to its former glory. They were ready to prove themselves on something dense and distinctive, and what Shaw was offering with Prydane might just give them that chance. Ron Miller was also enamoured with Shaw's artwork, and was determined to preserve its dark, mysterious quality. It would be an enormous gamble in terms of tone and texture, but like the younger artists, Miller was determined to prove what Walt Disney Productions was capable of. Though they shared Miller's enthusiasm, the remaining Nidal men were intimidated by the scale of Shaw's film. They weren't confident that the new artists were up to the challenge. Miller agreed, and in 1975 they were put to work on The Rescuers, kept under the watchful eye of Reitherman, Thomas, Johnson and Milt Call. This more modest production, along with the short The Small One, would be a means of sharpening their skills in preparation for the more ambitious film. The Prydain Project, now named The Black Cauldron after the second book in the series, was scheduled for a Christmas 1980 release. Don Bluth and his colleagues did not take the news well. They disagreed with the senior animators, they felt they were fully up to the challenge. Many of them had developed the rescuers in the early 1970s, but in the hands of the senior animation staff, they felt the project was becoming too sanitised, too safe. It was in the wake of this decision that Bluth began work on his own personal project, Banjo the Woodpile Cat, made after hours in his garage. Turning back to the film, what of those, you know, the, the, the Welsh myths and the Welsh storytelling traditions have survived into the film itself, filtered through Alexander, through the adaptation process, through its mangled, horrific production history. Well, looking at the film now with your area of study, can you see anything of those original, of that original source right back to the medieval, like pre-medieval stories in the film as it exists now? Um, well, I suppose the most obvious thing would be the cauldron itself and the undead warriors. This is, this is interesting. I mean, it's a very powerful image. I, I, it sort of struck me look, looking at the film again. As you mentioned in, when you were in the introduction, I have a sort of second interest in this sort of thing because I have also um, written a novel for children in Welsh, um, which also draws on some of these sources. And um, one of the things which I put into my novel uh, was the cauldron with the, um, you know, which creates the undead warriors. I'd completely forgotten about Lloyd Alexander. <laughs> so I hope that his estate aren't going to sue me now. You can just say you're drawing from a, you know, a, a, a cent the oldest in the oldest stories in the British Isles. I'm sure yeah, they yes, they quite. can't possibly call call you up for copyright on something that is that old. Yeah, it's quite clearly it's um it, it you know it's a motif which um you, you know which resonates. So yeah, that's probably the clearest example. Um, I, I I mean I suppose also the pig uh, and so on. That that's also you, you know that that also kind of fits in. Now some of the other stuff. Uh, comes across as a bit more generic. I mean, the, the 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 sort of the fair folk and so on. I mean, that that's in Lloyd Alexander, but that doesn't come from Welsh 
literature particularly. I mean, that's a bit more generic, I think, and perhaps ultimately more um, uh, Irish in origin. Also, the Horned King is something which you, you have in folklore, not particularly Welsh folklore, um, but also, um, you know, you have these sort of ancient um, pictures of horned gods and so on. Um, and that's clearly uh, where that comes from. And then I think, I mean, the the, the Gwythaint, uh, I mean, I think they're called, uh, the pronunciation is more like Gwythaint or something like that in the film. But Gwythaint is a Welsh word, which means some sort of predatory bird. Um, uh, and it, um, it's sometimes um, thought of as being similar to a vulture or whatever. But in the film, they become kind of generic fantasy dragons. Apart from the name, there's there's nothing very obviously uh, Welsh there. There's such an imbalance in the film of things like, you know, you have images and figures within the film like the Horned King or the Cauldron, which is such, like you're right, is such a potent image. The, the, there's, there's a kind of imbalance in the film of these incredible, this incredible iconography and these incredible ideas, like even just the idea of Henwen is this like a, 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 a pig that can tell the future. It's such an exciting, enticing idea, but it's thrown off balance by a very generic hero, a very generic heroine, and all these other very generic, generic elements that don't feel as rich as the Horned King or Henwen or the Cauldron. And so it makes you feel like when you're watching the film that there's almost like there's a better story just on the other side of a veil, like that there's, there is, I mean, obviously because the books are a much stronger narrative and are, you know, genuinely terrific books, but even just watching the film where you get the feeling of there's a better story to be told in here, but the elements just aren't mixing together because some have a lot of thought put into them and have a lot of kind of primal potency, while others feel about as interesting as a cardboard box, which makes the film ultimately, as much as I'm very fond of the film, it makes the film ultimately quite a, a, a disorienting experience to watch. Yes, I'd agree with that, I think. I mean, there, there are sequences in it which I, I, I thought were, were quite powerful uh, and, as you say, sort of, um, you know, rather um, undermined. Um, I mean, you know, the, the Horned King has, has this nice menacing air about him and so on, but his sort of henchmen are kind of, you know, rather undercut that, this sort of, bungling kind of idiots, you know, and, and the little green creature doesn't seem, uh, didn't seem to me to just kind of fit the atmosphere that, that was created by the cauldron and, the, uh, and so on, you know. And maybe it's the fact that, I mean, by virtue of the kind of filtering process down from the early stories through to the film, that you do have a sense in the film of there being something ancient about it. There are elements of the ancient and the primal kind of hidden within the margins of the film. Like a figure like the Horn, like there are recognisable figures like the Horn King where you go, I can see that being a, a figure that has existed for centuries. Or like, if not this figure, then a version of that figure. I can, you can see the lineage within the iconography. But... It's the film is robbed of that ability to be tr like in a way. Uh, the film I always think about this in comparison with is Sleeping Beauty, the Disney, the fifties Sleeping Beauty, which is similarly was a film that was a push for artistic perfection that nearly crippled the studio, but actually turned out to be amazing in the end. And its simplicity is kind of to its advantage, where it doesn't have strong characterization, it doesn't have a lot of ancillary characters that don't serve a purpose, and it does connect with that primal, in with our primal engagement with stories, with fairy tales and storytelling, and it feels old and giant. And there's a, a feeling with The Black Cauldron where you want it to go there, but it just 
can't go there. It's almost like it gets in a funny way. If you look at Creeper, you know the 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 Corn King's henchman. The, one of the the main things he does is he like trips over his own feet constantly. In a way, that's what the film is just doing all over the place. Is just is just kind of falling over itself, getting complicated in its own like character and narrative. When actually, if it was a lot simpler and a lot more direct, which the books certainly offer, it could probably be a much more satisfying experience as an audience member. Yes, yes, I, I, I can see that, all right, yes. I mean, I, I think another thing which I, I found, uh, now there's a little bit of this in the books as well, because they move very fast. One thing which I found right at the beginning, you know, the the Gwythines appear and they take um, Henwen and so on. And, um, you know, Taran, I'm afraid I can't bring myself to pronounce these names as they're pronounced in the film, but, you know, Taran sort of chases after the pig. And he he sort of comes to the top of a hill, and they're all of a sudden in this kind of blasted hellscape, you know. And you think, where was that hiding? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's just next door to where he lived, you know. Yes. Um, there's no feeling of of having travelled through a, a, a sort of geographically uh, consistent um, place. Um, again, maybe we we were our expectations have been raised too high by Lord of the Rings where, you know, everything is sort of mapped out to the inch almost. But but it, it, it seemed a bit bit of a shock, really, to kind of come over the brow of the hill and be faced with um, this, you know. But also maybe expectations based on other Disney films. Because, I mean, that's one of the things that is another of, you know, the disappointing aspects of The Black Cauldron is that Prydain itself has no discernible qualities as a, as a landscape, as an environment. And Disney, like, they're, they're quite good at that. Like, you know, obviously in a much smaller scale, so places like Neverland and Peter Pan and Wonderland and Alice in Wonderland, we know that they can create a world with, you know, very, with, with simple, simple techniques and simple tropes that it kind of, it is all the more baffling that, like, again, again, maybe it's just a, a consequence of its difficult production, but that, you know, Prydain... We don't know what Prydain is. We don't know what how it functions as a world. We don't know how it, how it functions as a, as a society. Certainly not by comparison to Alexander. And Alexander's description of Prydain is often quite confusing because it's just you can tell he's kind of building it as he goes. But at least it has some sort of texture to it. The only time you ever get any sense of texture is when they get to the uh, marshes of Morva, where all of a sudden you see a different landscape in Prydain, and you get a sense of of its weight and you get a sense of its history. But other than that, like, you're right. Like, you know, it's hard to get a grip of the, the movement of this story in the film because the, even, the, even the landscape doesn't have a discernible character to it. Yes. Uh, on a side note, actually, and this, this is something which goes back to um, Lloyd Alexander, but Prydine in Welsh is just the name for Britain. It, it clearly sounds exotic to people who don't speak Welsh, but if you speak Welsh, it's just Britain, you know, it's... Um, I think Lloyd Alexander spent some time in Wales during the Second World War, and um, and he he clearly you know immersed himself in Welsh culture and so on. I, I believe he he started to learn Welsh and so on, um, but uh, he obviously was aiming at an American audience that wouldn't know what that meant. But uh, yeah, if the original kind of function of these sto- of the stories like the Mabinogian and you know Celtic Celtic mythology, if the function of that was to impart a lesson or to kind of be a how-to guide on some aspect of being a good person or functioning within a society. 
is any of that still, do you see any of those kind of lessons present in The Black Cauldron as a film? Is Which I guess comes down to the question of what is the purpose of the film? What is its kind of central thesis or conceit? Do you see that tradition at all present within the film as it is as as it currently exists? Yeah, that's an interesting question, actually, because in a way you could say that that is one of the um, functions of Disney films as well, isn't it? You know, um, that the hero goes on a sort of um, a, a journey and learns how to negotiate the, the world. I think certainly the, the point is that Taran does, by the end of the film, uh, you know, find his feet a bit as a hero. I mean, that that's signposted quite heavily at the beginning, that he, a bit like Puig at the beginning of the first branch of the Mabinogi, is obviously not, um, you know, doesn't know what he's doing and so on. And, you know, obviously by the end of the um, of the film, he ha- has. Um, but I, I didn't feel that that development was as satisfactory as it is in, in some other Disney films. Yes, very much so. I mean, there is one of the things that I've realised by doing this project is that, that there is a very strong recurring narrative within Disney feature films, feature animated films, which is the idea of like a character who is separated from family, orphaned, lost, going through the process of of finding family or finding home and in the process of doing that often building a found family. And certainly The Black Cauldron adheres to that. It's just not as strong as, say, Pinocchio's narrative, which is one of the most exemplary within a Disney film, or even going back to The Jungle Book, even Mowgli's narrative, which is in in some ways has similarities to, to Tyrone's. Those are still there, but it's just not as potent. I mean, within within Celtic legends and Celtic mythology, what is the hero's journey traditionally? Like, is there a kind of discernible tra- like lesson that kind of a lot of the heroes within Celtic mythology are like exploring? Like, what what is the- obviously it's 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 a big, very like a vast, varied collection of 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 legends. But is there some consistency in what the role of a hero is within those stories? The answer to that is yes and no. There, there's been a tendency because Irish medieval Irish literature is is much more extensive than medieval Welsh literature. Medieval Irish literature is also attested earlier than in Wales, right? So you've got stories that go back to the um, 9th or 8th centuries, um, whereas in Wales, really, uh, we're looking at the 12th, perhaps at a push, the 11th century. There was a tendency in the 19th century and in the, the certainly the first half, perhaps more than the first half of the 20th century, for people um, who were studying medieval Welsh literature to look at it through an Irish lens because you've got so much more material from Ireland and you've got earlier material, and to sort of use the um, Irish material um, to to sort of fill the gaps in the Welsh material. Now, um, I'm not sure that that's really a valid, you know, sort of methodology. in Irish literature, you can see a sort of formulaic uh, process by which um, a hero um, has a, a miraculous birth of some description and then um, p- performs um, uh, wonderful deeds as a young man. Uh, you know, he's a prodigy. Um, he then um, quite often suffers a banishment of some description. Um, and then ultimately has a heroic death in battle. And you can see that quite clearly in um, Irish literature. And some people have um, uh, attempted to to sort of 
push the Mabinogion into that sort of straitjacket, if you like. And that was something which, um, at the time that um, Alexander, uh, that uh, sorry, Lloyd Alexander would have been getting to know this, would have been kind of mainstream thought. The four branches of the Mabinogi, you've got sort of overlap of, of characters and incidents, but, but it's not a, a neat story. And what um, some critics, particularly um, W.J. Griffith, did was to try to, to, to make it a, a more um, coherent story. And he argued that Praderi was the central character. He's the only character that's mentioned in all of the four branches, although he doesn't play much of a part. He doesn't really do anything in the second branch. Um, and he dies very early on in the in the final branch. He said, oh, this is the story of Praderi. I mean, you know, he starts off with this miraculous birth in the first branch. That's fine. Second branch, in reality, doesn't do anything. Well, well Griffith's answer was, oh, oh, in the original version, he did. He was the hero and he, he did all this stuff. Then he's banished in the in the third branch and then he dies a heroic death in the fourth branch. Probably when um, Lloyd Alexander was um, getting to know the Mabinogi, that would have been the, the dominant sort of um, critical paradigm that pe- people were using. Oh, these stories are corrupt in the form that they've come down. And originally it was the story of Praderi. So he may have been thinking in those terms of, you know, Taran being a young hero who has a a mysterious past, goes on this journey. Um, Because it's a sort of kid's fantasy book rather than a, um, you know, rather dark um, story, which, um, you know, particularly um, the second and fourth fronts, the Mabinogi are very dark, Um, you know, it doesn't end in him, his heroic death in battle, but um, but but I think you can you can probably see that that he was he was kind of aiming for that. How useful or I guess destructive has it been for Celtic legends and literature to try and kind of push put the square peg of them into the round hole of our more contemporary concepts? Contemporary is in the last two three hundred. 400 years concept of what story is how much has assuming that you know Praderi is the main character of the Mabinogian how much has though approaching the stories from that perspective been useful or damaging to the way that we've been able to see them now I I mean I think it it led um the the discipline up a cul-de-sac really um and now the emphasis is much more on um, you know, what have we got um, in the manuscripts and how would that relate, um, you know, not to sort of Celtic prehistory, but but more to, um, you know, 11th or 12th century Wales, you know, as part of 12th and 11th century Europe, um, you know. And I think that that's much more fruitful. I think that's a much more fruitful way of, of looking at the stories. I think on the other hand, I mean, I think we need to keep two things separate here, which is, um, firstly, um, you know, sort of scholarly engagement with the, the text and what they tell us about medieval Welsh culture, medieval Welsh history and so on. Uh, and then, you know, creative engagement of the text as text. Uh, and that's a different um, a, a different question, really. And, you know, in that case, if you're an author looking to use these as sort of inspiration, then anything goes, really. If you want to think of Pedelli as being the central character and that suits your purpose, great, go for it, you know. Um, so uh, so, so that, that's, that's kind of different, I, I, I suppose. I'm Princess Alonwi. 
Are you a lord or a warrior? Uh, no. I, I, I'm an assistant pig keeper. Oh, what a pity. I was so hoping for someone who could help me escape. Oh, well, if you want to come with me, you may. Can I? Well, yes, I said you could. In the mid-1970s, development on the Black Cauldron moved slowly, but the enthusiasm was still in the air, even from the disgruntled younger animators. Speaking with journalist John Colhane in 1976, Bluth remarked, Right now, enthusiasm for a story called The Black Cauldron is boiling through the studio, and we hope that the new generation can touch people with that story in ways that Walt never dreamed of. In the meantime, story artist Vance Jerry had been tasked with creating storyboards for the film, making decisions on character, plot, and location. Jerry decided that the villain of the film should be the Horned King, a character who only appears in the first book, The Book of Three. In Jerry's vision of the film, the Horned King is a big-bellied, red-haired Viking with a bad temper. It was thought that the project might benefit from an experienced screenwriter, so British television dramatist Rosemary Ann Sisson was brought on board. Another group that were enthusiastic about the Black Cauldron were the artists coming to Disney through the character animation program at Cal Arts. Launched in September 1975, the first graduating class included future directors John Lasseter, Brad Bird, and John Musker, the latter of whom became the de facto leader of the CalArts graduates at Disney. Unlike the artists trained through the studio's talent development program, the CalArts animators were younger, less experienced, and bursting with combustible enthusiasm. They were also more familiar with the character-driven principles of animation championed by Ritherman, and their boisterous work ethic put them in conflict with the more serious Bluth and his colleagues. One thing all three camps could agree on, the Ritherman camp, the Bluth camp, and the CalArts camp, was that the Black Cauldron had the potential to be something special, and everyone was restless to get started. It came as a huge blow then, when in August 1978, Ron Miller decided to push the release date once again. He was still convinced the animators weren't ready, and settled on a release date of Christmas 1984 instead. The far less ambitious The Fox and the Hound would take the original Christmas 1980 slot. This decision was yet another contributing factor to the rebellion led by Don Bluth in September 1979. It suggested a lack of confidence in the artists from the executive staff, and many saw The Fox and the Hound as another regression for Disney animation. In his chat with Culhane in 1976, Bluth had remarked, See, we haven't been telling better stories than Snow White, and we should be. We're doing the same thing over and over again, but we're not doing it any better. Rather than sitting and waiting for Disney to give them their chance, Bluth and his colleagues left to make their own ambitious fantasy epic, The Secret of Nim. As a result, the antagonistic energy within the animation department dissipated, and work continued on The Fox and the Hound and preparing The Black Cauldron. In the meantime, Mel Shaw had been hard at work developing another project, an adaptation of Mary Stewart's 1971 fantasy novel, The Little Broomstick. Ritherman was also very enthusiastic about this project, but Miller was concerned about its scale. As The Fox and the Hound was nearing completion, a decision had to be made on which film would follow, the in-development The Black Cauldron, or the new project, The Little Broomstick. The comparable scale of the two films meant that only one could proceed. In the end, and much to Ritherman's disappointment, The Black Cauldron won, and The Little Broomstick was shelved. Artist and Cal Arts graduate Mike Parazza had worked with Shaw on The Little Broomstick. 
The older generation, Frank and Ollie and all the other Disney veterans, he later recalled, liked the little broomstick, but the younger generation, almost to a person, were all excited about the Black Cauldron. You have to remember though, we had been listening for a couple of years how the Black Cauldron was our chance to do our own Snow White, something we could call our own. Mel had put a lot of work into it, even though the Black Cauldron film ultimately didn't reflect Mel's story. His version of Cauldron was amazing. Financing for the Black Cauldron was finalised in 1979, and in May 1981, a few months before the release of The Fox and the Hound, the film finally entered production. It had been a decade since the studio had bought the rights to Alexander's series, but the film now had an incredible visual guide in Mel Shaw's concept art, the literary backing of Rosemary Ann Sisson, a strong directing team that included the young but talented John Musker, the enthusiasm and dedication of the entire animation department, and the confidence of Ron Miller and the studio. Their chance had finally come to deliver the great animation classic of their generation. Very soon, that enthusiasm would give way to blind panic. I'm interested to hear about your experience as a writer going through the same process that Lloyd Alexander had gone through with his work, but also to a certain extent, I guess, what Disney went through with making The Black Cauldron. How did you approach adapting drawing from Welsh mythology for your own book, for your own story? What was that process like for you? Partly because that's what I do in my day job. It was the obvious place to go to for ideas because it's at the forefront of my mind. There's also another difference, which is that I I was writing in Welsh. And so I'm writing for an audience who will be familiar with the Mabinogi from an early age. Because kids here um, in schools, they get some version of the Mabinogi at an early stage. Uh, not not some of the elements are left out. I I should say yes. I I could imagine. I could imagine one or two maybe. <laughs> There's pretty uh, pretty adult themes in there, but they they get some version of it um, at an early stage. And also, you know, the the stories are set in the Welsh landscape. So um, you know, clearly, if you're in England or in America or in Australia or whatever, you know. These um, places are exotic. They're a bit like Middle Earth or Narnia or whatever. My partner is um, from Arbath, which is um, where Poich has his court in the first branch of the Mabinogi, which is a little town in Pembrokeshire. And so my daughter, for whom I was writing the story in the first place, was very familiar with um, Arbath. And, you know, it's just it's, it's part of her world. You know, so in a sense, whereas um, somebody like um, Lloyd Alexander or Alan Garner or whatever is taking these names because they sound exotic. You know, it's a bit different if you're writing in Welsh because they're actually quite familiar. So that's one sort of uh, point of difference, I, I would say. You know, and you can imagine I could I could make reference to some of the characters of the Mabinogi, knowing that my audience would have an idea of who they were, and that 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 would that would bring up a, a you know a set of associations in their minds. Whereas obviously if you're writing for an audience who knows nothing about um about Welsh culture or whatever, instead when you mention um I, I don't know Gwynath Neve or or something like that, 
They don't have associations. To, so this is this is an intriguing and exotic sounding name, you know. And Perdine, of course, is not Britain. It's um, it's an it's, it's a it's a mysterious realm somewhere or another. For you both, in terms of your re- like you know, this is an area of research for you. It's an incredible passion for you, but also it's your cultural heritage for you. How important is it for you to to know that? Welsh language, Welsh mythology, Welsh culture is being imparted to the next generation in terms of like Wales understanding of its cultural identity. How important are things like the Mabinogian, Welsh language, Welsh, mytholo- Welsh mythology to the concept of what it is to be Wales or what it is to be Welsh? Well, I think, I, I mean, I do think it's very important. I think, um, you know, there's a, there's a whole store of fascinating, you know, kind of cultural references there. And I think it's really it's really important that people get that stuff in Wales. You know, uh, I mean, obviously, the continued survival of the language is something which I feel very strongly about. For a language to be vital and and so on and to be relevant, it also needs to have its own kind of cultural uh, baggage to go with it. So I think the two go hand in hand. But I also think it, it's a resource which is on people's doorsteps. I mean, people that don't speak Welsh, people that aren't from Wales, but um, you know, it's a resource which has, in some ways, I think, been underused. In some ways, even people who are kind of interested in Celtic stuff, perhaps Ireland is the go-to place uh, there. Uh, and I think it'd be nice to see Wales stepping out on its own terms in some in some ways, uh, and for people to realise that um, it's got. It's got something to offer which is is different uh, to Ireland um, as well, you know, and, um, and and to kind of understand that on its own uh, terms. It's one of the things that I found quite moving as a kind of consequence of looking, like reading about Welsh mythology and and Wales and you know Welsh culture by looking into this particular film. That like, for example, like the idea of preserving a traditional language and preserving traditional stories as being important to cultural identity. Because in Australia, we have absolutely no processes in place whatsoever on a national level to do that. We have, you know, one of the most, like we have, you know, hundreds of First Nations languages in Australia and we have, look, endless amounts of stories and storylines that exist within this country and we aren't taught them in school we aren't like we aren't taught first nations languages we those like languages are dying out in australia at a, like an, an alarming rate there's a kind of like for those who, for whom this matters which should be all of us but for like it's so few of us the preserving of those languages and stories is like an it's you know it's a race against time to do that because the western the westernization of australia the colonization of australia was basically built to destroy those languages and stories and so now it's a case of having to kind of reconstruct them and try and put them back together and you know there are whole states in australia like tasmania has no like has almost no understanding of its original traditional languages or traditional stories and so it is quite incredible for an australian sitting like you know looking at like looking into you know the universities in wales and seeing how much welsh language is a kind of foundation stone of being able to even teach and converse in wales it's such a stark difference to what it's like for us here where we are very much at risk of losing our own national like we didn't even like we aren't even willing to embrace 
the traditional owners of our lands as our cultural identity and as the languages that we should be learning in school and the stories we should be learning and the cultural like identities we should be adopting. It's quite bre- like for me personally, just listening to you talk about it, it's quite breathtaking to hear that it means so much to the people of Wales and to you, and you know, that this is preserved and passed on and passed on intact and allowed to evolve into whatever it will be next, the way that the language will naturally evolve into whatever it becomes next, that these stories mean something are important to you. Yes, yes. I, I mean, obviously, you know, um, the, the situation in Australia is, is um, you know, is historically uh, uh, different and so, and so on, um, you know. But, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's an awful lot of... Um, uh, baggage, I think, that goes a, a, along with this ca- kind of thing, and I think, um, I think, in the sort of anglophone world where you know so, so many people who don't speak other languages and so on, there's sometimes a sort of fear, in a way, of, um, or, or I don't know whether fear is right, but a, or, or a kind of mistrust of other languages and other cultures, uh, you know, uh, and a feel, feeling that oh, if you kind of get um, sucked into that, you'll lose your own culture or something. And actually, the majority of the world, through history, people have spoken more than one language and have had more than one culture available to them. And that can only enrich an individual, but it can only enrich a society as well. That's my feeling. I mean, I learned Welsh as an adult, and my life has been immeasurably uh, enriched by it, uh, I, I have to say just because it's opened my eyes to other stories, to other um, c- cultural issues and so on. I'm just another way of expressing myself. So I'm very much an evangelist for learning more languages and learning, preserving and getting interested in, in a creative way with other cultures and other literatures and so on. I've said this a couple of times, but I think things have changed a bit. So that where, whereas you might think, you know, in the 1980s, the 1970s, 1980s, when the Black Cauldron was being made, um, you know, and, and people perhaps didn't even think it was worth bothering trying to find out how you should pronounce the names of the characters or whatever. I, I think, you know, things have changed now and there's a much more sensitivity about that sort of thing. So that were the film to be made today, I think it could be more of an engine uh, for promoting the the culture and the literature that it's based on that, that it perhaps was at the time. Looking at the film now, what purpose or place does it, like what, what, what's its place within the wider legacy of the Mabinogian and Welsh mythology? I mean, it obviously it's a highly compromised film and it, you know, that, that adherence to cultural sensitivity was clearly not something they were particularly concerned with while making it. But do you think it has a place within the legacy of these storytelling traditions and, you know, in terms of, you know, the way these stories are passed on? Do you think it has a, a place within the legacy of the Mabinogian in Welsh literature? Yeah, that's a that, that's an interesting question, really. I mean, I suppose you could say on a sort of philosophical level, oh, well, every version of a story is equally valid. I mean, uh, you know, that's that's a philosophical um, standpoint. Uh, in reality, I, I have to say, I think it's more of a curio than anything else. I think the books, the Lloyd Alexander books, are, are, are rather different, and you know, they they do stand up on their in their own right uh, as an interesting, you know, way in which 
um, and actually fairly culturally sensitive way in which this kind of material can be mined for, for creative reasons and so on. And the film then is, an, is, is another step removed. That, that's my feeling anyway. The sad reality of the fact that this film was just buried for so long, and to a certain extent still is, is that it's very hard for, for it to be a pathway for people to discover where these stories where this story comes from. I mean, you know, you it, the film itself is not necessarily, again, a film that I'm very fond of, but a film that does not necessarily invite further investigation from an audience, from a casual audience member. They're not maybe going to be inclined to want to go and read Lloyd Alexander's books from watching the film. And, of course, if they open the first page of the Book of Three, they're going to see this is a story drawn from Welsh mythology, and then maybe they will go and want to discover that. But in a way, maybe the sad, the sad reality of the fact this film has been as buried as it has, is that it there's no there's not a lot of writing about it, there's not a lot of discussion about it, um, outside of it being a curiosity, that it can't then be a pathway for discovering these stories. The ways that, you know, the Lord of the Rings might be a way of discovering stories, and certainly Harry Potter has been, or that, you know, that that though these great foundational works of fantasy that have caught like had cultural impact have led to a an embracing of much older, much more primal storytelling traditions, The Black Cauldron being a basically forgotten film that Disney would quite like us to, I think, would quite like us to forget, means that it doesn't, it can't actually do a good, the, the good work that an adaptation of classic mythology can do, which is to lead people back to the mythology itself. That, that's a very fair point, I think. Yes, it's difficult to see that, um, that, that that many people. I mean, of course, you know, there's a there's an element. I mean, you know, I'm a lecturer in the Celtic Studies department, and actually, um, we find that. Um, I mean, we 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 have, you know, quite a lot of students come from Wales, but we also have students coming from all over the world, and um, very often, they've come to us because they discovered Welsh and Irish literature through works of. Uh, fantasy uh, fiction, um, but but I I doubt that the Black Cauldron um, led many people to us. I mean, certainly Tolkien has been um, a, a great source, you know, and and various other people like well, including the Lloyd Alexander books, you know. But but I I don't think the film is is pro- probably very high up on the list of you know if you like gateway drugs to Celtic studies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's it's just. I mean, it's just too compromised. It just like it in a way. It's it doesn't hold enough of that lineage in it for it for you for it to be discernible within it. I presume, my boy, you are the keeper of this oracular pig. Uh, y- yes, sir. Then instructs her to show me. The whereabouts of the Black Cauldron. As the Black Cauldron entered production, Walt Disney Productions were preparing to launch a number of ambitious new enterprises. An altered version of Walt's dream futuristic city, Epcot, was finally being built adjacent to Walt Disney World. And in the film department, they were attempting something unheard of, a feature film making extensive use of computer-generated imagery, not as window dressing, but as an integral part of the narrative. Working from Vance Jerry's storyboards and Rosemary Ann Sisson's screenplay, it was decided to focus The Black Cauldron on the first two volumes of The Chronicles of Prydain, 
The Book of Three and The Black Cauldron. John Musker, the brilliant CalArts graduate whom many of the young animators had rallied around, was brought on as director. This was a huge vote of confidence in his abilities, since Musker had no directing credits of any kind. Only three years after joining Disney, he was now handed the reins of a highly anticipated high-profile production. The role of producer went to Art Stevens, who was finishing up his directing duties on The Fox and the Hound. Work began in earnest developing the characters and environments in the film, with the Disney artists encouraged to think outside of the box. One of the artists assigned to character development on the film was Tim Burton. While his work on The Fox and the Hound had not meshed well with his artistic sensibilities, The Black Cauldron was a perfect fit for Burton's quirky, gothic style. Mike Gabriel, who joined Disney as an in-betweener in 1979 and worked as an animator on the film, later said of Burton's work, that was what we were excited about. His concepts were just incredible to us. We were going nuts for his stuff. He had the coolest ideas for the villain, the Horned King. The Horned King had puppets on his hands and he talked to his puppets. And then the Gwythaints were actually made out of these long skeletal kind of like Edward Scissorhand figures. The hand itself was the bird and it was just these hands flapping around. Brilliant stuff that would have redefined what is a Disney animated film. To lend the film prestige, it was also decided to shoot the film on Super Technorama 70, the same format that Sleeping Beauty had been shot in and the first animated film to use the format since. In recent years, Disney had favoured a 1.78 to 1 aspect ratio, often matted from 1.66 to 1, but The Black Cauldron would have a significantly wider aspect ratio of 2.20 to 1, adding over 40% more image to the frame. This had caused significant problems on Sleeping Beauty, but the department were now more prepared, handing out detailed guides to the animators on how best to work within the wider frame. Once production was complete on The Fox and the Hound, it was decided to transfer the directing team of Richard Rich and Ted Berman to The Black Cauldron to assist Musker. Rich and Berman had co-directed The Fox and the Hound with Cauldron producer Art Stevens, and this imbalance between the Disney veteran artists and the younger Musker began to cause tension over the direction the film was taking. Miller was forced to step in and decided to replace Stevens as producer with one better suited to solve any conflicts that might arise. He approached layout artist Joe Hale. Ron Miller called me up and asked me if I would take over as producer on The Black Cauldron, he later recalled, but I didn't want to do it because a good friend of mine, Art Stevens, was the producer and I just didn't feel right about it. And at that time, I was more interested in live action, and I talked to Ron about second unit live action directing. Anyway, Ron finally told me that whether I took the job or not, Art was going to be replaced by someone else. So I took over The Black Cauldron. Here is Joe Hale talking about the film with John Culhane in 1983. One of our problems was that there were so many characters and so much story that it was kind of a case of uh, taking all of this material and condensing it into uh, one story that we could put on the screen. Of course, the thing that I always look for in an animated uh, film is to try to do a, a story that can't be done any other way. For instance, uh, Bambi or uh, 101 Dalmatians or Lady and the Tramp could only be done in animation. I always feel that if you can do it with real actors, then that's really the way you should do it. Very quickly, Hale began to make significant decisions on the direction of Cauldron. He rejected all of Burton's artwork and reassigned him to other projects. He also began revising the story, bringing in new story artists and working to further condense the two books into a workable film. 
There had now been nearly a decade of story development done for Cauldron, and Hale saw it as his task to pull the whole thing together. Unhappy with Vance Jerry's original concept of the Horned King as a hot-blooded Viking, Hale reconceived the character as a skeletal, threatening figure, pulling on elements from the various villains of the book series. He also turned to the now-retired Milk Call, asking him if he would be able to help out with character designs for Taran, Alomwi, Fluda, Gurgi, and the Horned King. Call had been responsible for some of the most memorable Disney characters, but Hale had made a gross miscalculation as to Call's process. Rather than creating character designs from his own imagination, Call relied on concept art to respond to, none of which Hale had thought to send him. All of his designs recall earlier Disney characters, but while most were eventually rejected, his designs for Taran and Alomwi remain mostly intact in the film, the former a little too reminiscent of Peter Pan and the latter of Alice or Aurora. These boisterous creative decisions soon began to create further tension within the production team. Rosemary Ann Sisson stepped down as screenwriter, citing creative differences with the directing team. Rather than removing Art Stevens from the project entirely, Miller made him the fourth director in the team, and this had thrown the balance against John Muske even further. The young director wasn't even given any sequences to direct. He and colleague Ron Clements had been working on an adaptation of Eve Titus's children's book, Basil of Baker Street. So along with Clements, who had been working in story development on Cauldron, Muska requested to be taken off the film and assigned to Basil instead. We were the odd men out, Muska later recalled, along with a few other people who wanted the story and the characters to go in a certain way, and the people in charge didn't see it that way. It was very frustrating. An expansion of the department's project development program allowed for two films to be in production simultaneously. So in 1982, both men were reassigned to the other film, Muska as co-director and Clements as story artist. Very soon, other artists began to follow Musker and Clements. Glenn Keane, who had made such a significant mark on The Fox and the Hound, was among them. Everything I did was being thrown out, he recalled. They just did not like anything I was doing. Eventually the directors asked me if I would just leave the film and go do something different. Story artist Michael Giamo also saw his work on the film rejected for being too broad. The Black Cauldron, once the hopes and dreams of the new generation of Disney artists, was now back in control of Disney veterans. Simon, do you have a favourite Disney animated film? Yeah, that's a good question, really. I, I mean, we've already established that I've n- never got very uh, sucked into it. Now, I have seen more of them since I've had children myself. I would certainly say I think Snow White is um, is, is is great. You know, I mean, I, it, it, I I think I'd probably go with that as a as a, as a classic. It's a you know, it's a it's a very well done film, and also like really really digs into the roots of fairy tale storytelling traditions. Like it, fe- it of almost all of them, it feels the most where you're like, oh yeah, this is this is based on a very old story. Um, it doesn't mince around with that fact yes i i'd agree i'd agree with that it's very it, it, it's very lean there's not nothing's wasted in there uh, and as you say it does get kind of get to the heart of the um uh, story yes well simon thank you so much for joining me on this episode to talk about the black cauldron it's been a tremendously exciting and educational one for me someone who's very um keen to learn more about 
Celtic studies and Celtic mythology, in particular Welsh mythology, after having kind of delved into learning more about this film. So thank you so much for sharing your insight and knowledge and passion with us for this episode. Thank you. I've enjoyed it immensely. In July 1982, Aurora Productions released Don Bluth's first animated feature, The Secret of Nim. While it was only modestly successful at the box office, the film garnered widespread critical acclaim, many praising it as an artistic triumph. To make matters worse for Disney, the dark gothic tone of the film was uncomfortably similar to what Miller had been hoping for with The Black Cauldron. Bluth imbuing a fantastical subplot not present in the original Robert C. O'Brien novel. A few weeks later, Cauldron was delivered another blow when animators across the US went on strike. There have been growing concerns over the outsourcing of animation to artists overseas, especially for television. The strike would continue for 10 weeks until September 1982, during which time the Black Cauldron was held together by a makeshift crew of artists not part of the strike. To make matters worse, they realised that the guides they'd been using for the Super Technorama 70 frame were incorrect when compared to those used on Sleeping Beauty, and many of the sequences needed to be reworked. On December 9, 1982, the first cells for the Black Cauldron arrived at the inking and painting department. There were still conflicts over the story, but with the Christmas 1984 release date looming on the horizon, work needed to pick up steam. The film was shaping up to be a monster of a production, and yet after so long in development, there was still no agreement over what the film actually was. Whatever chaos it had weathered though, was nothing compared with what was to come. On the next episode of Ink and Paint. I'm not sure the film knows what it wants him to do. It certainly doesn't follow the arc and development of the novels. I'm joined by arts writer and broadcaster Richard Watts to continue our look into the devastating failure of The Black Cauldron. Thanks again to Dr. Simon Rodway for joining me on this episode. You can find out more information about Aberystwyth University at aber.ac.uk. Be sure to check out the show notes on this episode at inkandpaint.com.au for more information about the making of The Black Cauldron, including concept art and animation sketches. You can follow Ink and Paint on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and TikTok at inkpaintpod for bonus material and news on upcoming episodes. You can also email daniel at inkandpaint.com.au or find me on Twitter at Daniel Lamon. A big thank you to all our listeners supporting us on Patreon, if you'd like to support the podcast and have access to exclusive bonus content, be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash inkpaintpod. We release new episodes every fortnight, as well as bonus in-betweeners every now and then. So if you enjoyed the show, please rate, review and follow on your favourite podcasting platform. And don't forget to tell your friends. Ink and Paint was created, hosted and written by myself, Daniel Lamon, and produced and edited by Alex Amster. Theme music is composed by Sam Porter. The show artwork is designed by Nicholas Piranakis, with episode illustrations by Lily Grace Meek, and the podcast is released through Switch, makethe-switch.com.au. Join in next time on Ink and Paint to continue our journey through the Disney animated classics.
Excuse me, I just need to open a door for the cat. To go to, <laughs> That's all good. Um, we're, insufferable we're, if I don't let her out. Um, we're very we're very pro pets on this podcast. I have a cat who often will walk in and just start yelling at me of like I've had enough of you talking <laughs> into that black thing microphone thing. Can you please pay attention to me now? So it's all good. 